Have you ever heard it said that you have to be a fool to believe in God? Well, today I want us to speak with an Oxford professor with three earned doctorates who argues that Christians can absolutely believe in God while still living and working in the world of science. Hi, I'm Charles Morris. This is the Great Stories Podcast. On today's episode, you'll be hearing from John Lennox in a conversation way back to 2008. And interestingly, we had this conversation at the desk of C.S. Lewis outside Oxford at his house, the Kilns. And together we will answer the question, has science buried God? And of course, you already know the answer, or I at least hope you do. Of course it hasn't. But I think you might be surprised to hear how much the worlds of science and belief intersect, even though many atheist scientists too often turn their noses up at anything remotely spiritual. It's a great conversation that I know you won't want to miss. And so, let's get started. Let's meet up with John Lennox at C.S. Lewis's old home, which is called The Kilns. This is Haven Today, and we are coming to you from the desk of C.S. Lewis across from uh, Dr. John Lennox, who is a professor at Oxford University, three earned doctorates. John, Peter Atkins has written, Humanity should accept that science has eliminated the justification for belief in cosmic purpose. In other words, science has taken us to the place where it's naive to believe there's a God. Do you think that's true, or do you think that's false? I think Peter Atkins is being extremely naive in what he says that science has eliminated God because not only has science not eliminated God, it seems to me the boot is on the other foot, but science points towards God. Atkins, uh, with whom I've actually discussed these matters, holds the view that we call scientism. That is, he thinks that science can at least potentially answer every question. But if we take someone who, not to put a fine point on it, is a much more eminent scientist than Atkins, Sir Peter Medawar, who worked in Oxford, a Nobel Prize winner, he makes the point that it's very easy to see that science is limited, in that science cannot answer the questions of a child. Where do I come from? Where am I going? What is the meaning of life? So I think it's very important, and I'm a passionate scientist, it's very important to realize that science is intrinsically limited, and that's not an insult to science. I suppose one of the things we often say is that science tends to answer the how questions, whereas religion, Christianity in my case, answers the big why purpose questions, and I think that's true. So I think he's wrong, and I think he's wrong for several reasons, because as a scientist, he believes that the universe is rationally intelligible, that it's accessible to the human mind. But he's an atheist. So he believes that his mind is just an epiphenomenon of the brain. And in the end, the brain is just the end product of a mindless, unguided process. Mm. And his colleague, Richard Dawkins, admits that if the mind has been cobbled, the brain has been cobbled together in this kind of way, it's not likely to be very reliable. So it seems to me that his atheism, with its reductionism, actually undermines his belief in the rational intelligibility of the universe. I stand 
with the great scientists of history like Newton and Kepler and Galileo, who did their science, in fact, found a fundamental motivation in the fact that they looked for laws in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. So far from belief in God hindering the development of their science, it was the motor that drove it. And I see no reason whatsoever to go along with Atkins. So I think he's completely wrong. Mm. You've written the book, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? It's a wonderful book. And in the book, you use the illustration of Matilda's cake to explain the limits of science. Would you mind sharing that with, with us? Not at all, not at all. I think this question of what science can and cannot do is so important that it's almost best to illustrate it simply so that I find this illustration is simple enough that even professors can understand it, you see. And the idea is that I'm the MC at a conference and in front of me are all the Nobel Prize winners of the last 10 years, say. And here's Aunt Matilda and she's standing there in front of the audience and she's made a beautiful cake. So I ask all these scientists to analyse it. So, of course, the biochemist tells us about its biochemistry. The chemist reduces it to various elements and the physicist describes the elementary particles of which it's composed. So when they've all done, and by definition, they've given us the best information that's available, I say to them, now, ladies and gentlemen, I have one final question for you. Why did she make the cake? Now, the physicist can tell us what it's made of, but of course cannot tell us why she made the cake. So as she watches them, she starts to grin because, of course, she knows why she made the cake. Mm -hmm. And a moment's thought, I think, will convince us that unless she reveals it to us, we'll never know. Even applying scanning techniques to her brain with the latest MRI and computer tomography will not tell us what she's thinking. So unless she, as a person, reveals it to us, we won't know. Now, the importance of that is this. When she reveals it to us, that doesn't mean we shut off our rationality. We have to use our rationality to understand what she said. And there's such a common misconception around the place that reason and revelation are opposed. That's nonsense to my mind. You see, because my little story is very innocent, but it's not so innocent because it raises a very big question. Is there something, or better, someone, who stands in the same relation to the universe as Aunt Matilda does to her cake? And if so, has that someone spoken? Now, from where I sit as a Christian, that is exactly the case. God exists, he's behind the universe, and he, is, he has spoken. There is revelation, and I myself am convinced that the Bible is the revelation of God. But that doesn't mean that I'm anti-reason. Indeed, I have to use my reason even to read the Bible. It's absurd to say that revelation is against reason. They don't even belong to the same category. The way I imagine it, to make it clear to people, is simply this, that we're talking about sources of information. One of the sources of information is the universe around us. And as a scientist, I'm very interested in what reason and logic can deduce from it. But I believe there's another source of information, the Bible, God's word in my case. Mm -hmm. And I use my reason on it as well. I don't shut my reason off. Mm -hmm. But unaided reason will not give to me the information that's in there. But once 
I come to it and it's there. It's a given, like the universe is a given. Scientists don't invent the universe. They study what's there. Mm -hmm. Similarly with the Bible, we study what's there, but we use our reason on it. And that's very important. So I'm not committing intellectual suicide at all. Okay. Would you say there's an underlying motive or, or even faith fueling the argument that science has buried God? Oh, of course there is. But this is a very problematic area for the simple reason that the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and Dan Dennett have got a very idiosyncratic definition of faith that suits their purpose very well. They regard all faith, uh, particularly religious faith, as believing where there isn't evidence, where you know there isn't evidence, where you rejoice that there isn't evidence. Now this is utter nonsense. Certainly as far as the Christian faith is concerned, the Christian faith is squarely based on evidence and the central evidence for me is the fact that historically there's all the evidence of the life and the death of Jesus, but most importantly, the historical evidence for his resurrection and the subjective evidence of what happens when we respond to him by trusting him. So there's a subjective and an objective side. But the point I want to make is that faith in Christianity is not believing where there's no evidence, is not rejoicing that there's no evidence, but it's a commitment based on evidence. Otherwise, we'd be complete fools. But you see, because the new atheists believe that faith is there's no evidence, they don't take it seriously. They don't investigate the evidence, although they claim they're very interested in evidence. For example, all of them, the new atheists, say that from a scholarly perspective, the existence of Jesus is doubtful. I've never met an ancient historian that takes that view. And they could have checked with ancient historians. But Richard Dawkins, in his recent book, The God Delusion, quotes a professor in London who says it's dubious. He doesn't tell his readers that the professor is a professor of German literature. So this seems to me to be a very serious kind of error. Mm. It is the number one error really in academia that if you're not an expert in a field that you consult the experts. Mm -hmm. And this the new atheists have singly failed to do. So they make an error in the direction of thinking that the Christian faith is not evidence-based. But there's a second error that their own position is not faith-based. And Christopher Hitchens has a wonderful statement in his book, God is Not Great. Our beliefs are not a belief. Well, I mean, that's logical nonsense for a start. But they cannot see that their whole structure, their atheistic philosophy, is a belief system. And mm -hmm. I want to say not only is it a belief system, it is a belief system with no evidence. Mm -hmm. So, again, the boot is on the other foot. So that... Faith in science is another thing. They don't seem to realize that every scientist is a believer. And I mentioned that earlier in the rational intelligibility of the universe. Einstein pointed out he can't imagine a scientist without that faith. And he uses the word faith. The question is, where do we ground it? Do we ground it in the atheistic view of a mindless, unguided process producing the mind? Or, in what to my mind is a far better explanation at every level, that the reason we can understand the universe in part is because the universe out there, the human mind in here, are ultimately traceable to the same author, God. Mm. 
Wow, I'm going to take a breath there and just remind our listeners if somebody joins us. This is Dr. John Lennox. We are at the desk of C.S. Lewis. I'm looking at his pipe right now, and uh, Dr. Lennox is a professor at Oxford University. Do you believe, John, that science has arrived at conclusions that actually support belief in a creator? I think that it's important to make certain distinctions here because we use the word proof a little too loosely and people then get confused. I'm a mathematician and that's really the only field, pure mathematics, where you get anything that looks like absolute proof. That is, you can give a logical construction, certain arguments based on certain axioms. In all other areas of science and indeed everyday experience, we can't talk about proof in that absolute sense. But what we talk about is evidence, indicators, belief beyond reasonable doubt. For example, could I prove that my wife loved me? Well, I couldn't in the mathematical sense, but I believe I could give you enough evidence so that my commitment to her uh, and my belief that she loves me is strongly evidence-based. So having said that, you ask me the question, does science give evidence for God? And I would say absolutely at many different levels. The first is in its nature and methodology. It presumes that there are laws out there, that they're mathematically describable. That, to my mind, is powerful evidence, as it was for Galileo and Kepler and Newton and Clark Maxwell and some of the most famous scientists then and some of the Nobel Prize winners now, like Bill Phillips, who's um, in the US, Nobel Prize winner for physics, that that is powerful evidence for a designing mind who is behind the universe and upholds it. But I think there's more to it than that. Uh, that's the methodology of science. But when we come to the results of science, we now know in the last few decades just how special the Earth is for life. You have to have very special conditions to give you life. Now, we're aware of that, all of us, at an elementary level. If the Earth was a bit closer to the sun, carbon-based life would be impossible because of the heat. If it was a bit further away, the same, impossible because of the cold. If the Earth spun a little bit faster, there'd be no atmosphere and we'd all get a free trip into space. If it spun more slowly, we'd freeze to death at night and we'd boil to death in the daytime. So it has to be extremely special. But the fascinating thing is when it comes to the standard mathematical models of physics, the hot Big Bang model, for example, the parameters, the basic fundamental constants that in one sense define the universe, they have to be accurate to levels of accuracy that are simply mind-boggling. Sir Roger Penrose, who works in Oxford and is probably the greatest applied mathematician of the century, Sir Roger Penrose argues that if you want a universe like this with a second law of thermodynamics, so even your Cadillac will rust, that kind of a universe like we've got, the creator, these are his words, and he's not a theist, the creator has to have a name accurate to one part in 10 to the power 10 to the power 123. And he himself points out that that's a number so large that if you write a 1 on one of the elementary particles of the universe and write zeros on every other elementary particle of the universe, you couldn't even write the number out. So that is one of those interesting things, scientific discoveries, we call it the fine-tuning of the universe, that has led the Princeton physicist Mark Tigmark to say either there's a creator or a multiverse. Mm. 
And the multiverse theory is the idea that there is an infinite number of parallel universes. There are various versions of it. And the multiverse theorists think that this somehow makes it more probable that we could have a universe like this one. I disagree with them, actually, because a multiverse doesn't argue against God because God can create as many universes as he wants. But the probabilistic argument, which is a little bit more complex, taking place in this universe doesn't alter the impression of fine-tuning at all. The interesting thing is, as my teacher of quantum physics at Cambridge, Sir John Polkinghorne, has pointed out, that there's no evidence serious hard evidence for the existence of multiverses and by definition they're inaccessible to us mm. so as one philosopher pointed out take your choice one god or an infinite number of inaccessible universes mm. so it seems to me that the fine tuning really constitutes such a problem for the materialist atheist that the preference is for the multiverse theory to which we've no access now that seems to be faith without very much evidence, you see. So there's that. And the final point I'd make, amongst many others that one could make, is that we have lived to see that life has a digital base. There's a very long word, if you like, in a four-letter alphabet that constitutes the human genome and defines it. So that life, in that sense, is word-based. Now, as a pure mathematician, I'm extremely interested in the origin of that kind of information. Now, very often people say, ah, but that's evolution. Not in the commonly accepted sense, because evolution presumes the existence of a mutating replicator. But I'm talking about how did that itself come to exist? Mm -hmm. And so that can't be evolution in the commonly accepted sense. So we're down to random processes and the laws of nature. And I think, as a mathematician, that the evidence all points in the other direction. That's what I've argued in my book in some detail, that information requires a sender, an intelligent sender. And you don't get the kind of complex language-like information we have in DNA without it originating in a mind. Why I find that so fascinating is this. If we take the two worldviews we're talking about that are in collision, it's not science versus theology. It's atheism versus theism. And there are scientists on both sides. So it's not just science versus theology at all. It's atheism versus theism. It seems to me that your materialistic worldview says in the beginning was mass energy. Everything else is derivative. The biblical worldview is the exact opposite. In the beginning was the word. And mass energy, the universe, are all derivative. And to my mind, science in the large, physics, cosmology, and so on, and biology both point in the direction of the biblical worldview. In the beginning was the word. The universe is describable in terms of mathematical words. The human genome is describable in terms of the DNA word. So it seems to me that that's how the pointers move. Now, they're not knockdown proofs. They're not X plus Y equals Z squared, and therefore God exists. But they're pointers, very powerful pointers. We are coming to you from the kilns, and uh, I'm sitting at the desk of C.S. Lewis across from uh, 
Dr. John Lennox, who is a professor at Oxford University, three earned doctorates. We're sitting at the desk of a man who actually had an influence on you early in your life, didn't he? He did indeed, yes. I went to Cambridge in 1962 to read mathematics. And it was Lewis's last year as a lecturer there teaching. He was dying at that point of, of cancer, I think. And I had read most of his books before I came to university because I had a very enlightened parents who allowed me to think and encouraged me to read. So the English department lecture theatre was just across Mill Lane from the maths department. So I sneaked out once or twice from the maths lectures, which I should have been attending diligently, and went to hear Lewis. And I'm so thrilled I did because it was it was a profound experience just going into that lecture theatre packed with students sitting on the floor and Lewis bursting in through the door in the winter dressed in his big heavy coat and starting to lecture as he came through the door and unwinding his scarf and taking off his coat so that he was in full flight by the time he got to the lectern. And then when he finished his lecture, the reverse process happened. So his last words were uttered as he closed the door behind him. <laughs> so it was quite dramatic. <laughs> you were a believer uh, when you went to Cambridge. You told me that in the past. Uh, but at the same time, uh, here you were listening to Lewis. Lewis was an atheist. And early in your experience at university, you befriended atheists, didn't you? Oh, yes. Well, of course, Lewis had been a Christian some years when I heard him, but he was an atheist up until middle life, certainly. And I came up to Cambridge as a Christian, but I was approached, or at least in a conversation, in my first week as a student, when somebody said, do you go to church? Do you believe in God? And then the questioner said, oh, sorry, uh, I forgot you're Irish. They all believe in God over there and they fight about it. And it raised a question that, of course, wasn't new to me, but it raised it more sharply than ever. Was my faith and my commitment simply a product of my parents' faith and their parents' faith, in fact, Irish genetics, environment, and if I'd been born somewhere else, I'd have believed something else. So that propelled me on really a lifelong journey of trying to find out what people who had not been exposed to my background or upbringing believed. And so the diametrically opposite pole to my own position was atheism. So I looked around for an atheist and found one and uh, we became friends and we entered into a dialogue. He became a Christian about a year later. And I suppose I've been talking to atheists ever since. But when he became a Christian, that was important to me to see that people could assess the evidence for themselves and independently of their background, they could come to a conclusion and make a commitment of faith. And I have found over the years that by discussing with people who don't share my background, discussing openly, I found that that has confirmed my faith. The more I've exposed my own position to alternative arguments, the more that has strengthened my own position, in fact. It's interesting that evolution is the one theory that cannot be questioned, but you actually commit the heresy of questioning the theory of macroevolution. How provable is it? Well, my book, the argument in my book, and this is important to notice, is at two levels. You see, Richard Dawkins particularly, who is a zoologist, claims that you can deduce atheism from biology. Now, I'm skeptical of that, wearing my philosopher's hat and my scientist's hat. Firstly, evolution is a biological theory. 
atheism is a worldview. They don't belong to the same category. One is science, the other is worldview. And that sends my philosophical antennae quivering a bit and red lights start flashing. And it seems to me that what's going on here is a fundamental category mistake and a very serious error. And it goes like this. You see, when Sir Isaac Newton discovered the law of gravitation and discovered at one level the heavens work, so to speak, he didn't say, marvellous, I've got a mechanism, therefore there's no agent who designed it. No, what he said was, what a marvellous mechanism. It must be a very clever agent who designed it. Now, the point I'm making here is this. The existence of a mechanism that does something is not in itself an argument for the non-existence of an agent who designed it. If we understand the laws of internal combustion on which a motor car operates, that doesn't prove that Henry Ford didn't exist. And it seems to me that this is the kind of error that's being committed. Here's a mechanism, natural selection and mutation. It clearly does something. Mm -hmm. Now, just for a moment, for the sake of the argument, let's suppose it did everything. There's a mechanism that produces something. Okay, well, how does that prove there isn't an agent who designed it? And somebody said, ah, but there's randomness involved. Well, so there isn't a self-winding watch. But because a self-winding watch winds itself up by the random motions of your arm, you don't argue that there's no watchmaker. In fact, you say he's more sophisticated because he did it that way and not the usual wind-up way. So that I want to argue, number one, that whatever the answer to the evolution question is, you still can't deduce atheism from it. Now, once you see that, you can then say, of course, there is another question. Does the proposed theory of evolution bear all the weight that's put on it? It clearly bears some weight. Natural selection produces differences in human beings, produces differences in plants, and so on and so forth. That's not controversial. Mutations, we all, alas, suffer from them. So mutation and natural selection produce something. But does it bear all the weight? And I raise questions in my book I'm not a biologist, I'm a mathematician. So I try to read as much as I can and see the way things are going. And I notice that within the biological field, there's a vast division among evolutionists. Richard Dawkins says it all happened gradually. Stephen Jay Gould uh, says it, it happened with great jumps. So I say, well, that's interesting. There's not just one view out there. Although, of course, they all believe in the, the theory of evolution. And where I find the major problem is not the idea that things can adapt to niches and so on and so forth and the minor variations that Darwin brilliantly observed, like finch beak lengths and all this kind of thing. It's the creation of something novel. That is increase in information. And that's why as a mathematician, I'm more interested actually in the origin of life itself because that's where we're getting down to the heart of the digital type information that I mentioned before. So to cut a long story short, I am very skeptical about the weight that some people put on this mechanism. I am extremely skeptical when it comes to the origin of life, because it seems to me that it demands an external input of information from outside. But 
whatever the ultimate answer to that is, you can't get atheism out of it. Mm. Which is why in the world today, leading people like the director of the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins, would describe himself as a believer in evolution and simultaneously a believer in God. So here you are in Oxford, and uh, you're not only a theist, but you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you find that a little hard as a scientist and as a philosopher? Not in the slightest, because the Christian faith, the bottom line for me is that the Christian faith is true. That has been the thing that has always motivated me, and it's the same motivation as science. What is the truth about reality? So I find no conflict here at all because I think that the evidence supports the claims of Christ and in the sense of the objective claim that he rose from the dead as a matter of ancient history, that he was God incarnate. Those are the only answers that make sense to me of the data and of the evidence. So if the scientific mind or the rational mind is following evidence to its logical conclusion. I'm not the slightest bit ashamed of believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because I see that the evidence points powerfully that way. The historical evidence outside of me, but then my own subjective experience of what it means to make that commitment and how it works out in life. I think what may be behind your question though is that as a scientist, many people, and Richard Dawkins said it to me quite recently, he said, you don't really believe all that stuff about the resurrection. What about David Hume? And many of my colleagues in science think that the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume disposed of the possibility of believing in miracles long ago. Now, I simply think that is false because Hume made a definition of miracles has become very popular that they violate the laws of nature. And to my mind, that's nonsense. Because as C.S. Lewis pointed out, and we're sitting at his desk, C.S. Lewis, who's helped me enormously in many ways, ever since my early days at Cambridge when I listened to him lecture, C.S. Lewis makes the point that miracles don't violate the laws of nature. And he gives a lovely little illustration. And it goes like this. He says, law of arithmetic, 2 plus 2 equals 4. So if you put $200 plus $200 in your bedside drawer tonight, that's $400. If you wake up in the morning and find only $50, you don't say, oh, the laws of nature have been broken. But you might say the laws of the United States have been broken. <laughs> but how do you know that the laws of the United States have been broken? because you know the law of arithmetic. It hasn't been broken. So you know somebody's put their hand into the system. Mm -hmm. Now that's exactly the same. We know that dead bodies don't normally rise. Otherwise we'd never recognize a resurrection as anything special. So the point that Lewis makes is very important, it seems to me. In order to have what we call miracle, you need to have two things. One is a system of that has regularities built into them. And secondly, God who's outside that system can feed a new event in. God is not a prisoner of his laws because those laws are our formulations of what normally happens. So when God becomes human, to put it in contemporary language, he codes himself into human life. He codes himself into one of the cells, one of the eggs in 
Mary's body, and then nine months later, nature takes over, assimilates it, as Lewis says, and nine months later, a child is born, as Dr. Luke tells us. In other words, laws of nature are not broken. It's God feeding a new event in. And you see, <laughs> resurrections aren't normal, nor are they natural, but no Christian ever claimed they were. This is super nature. That is, as the New Testament says quite explicitly, it didn't come about by natural processes. Of course not. It came about by an enormous injection of power by God from the outside. So to suggest that miracles, in that sense, God doing something special that's not within the normal cause-effect web, violate the laws of nature is simply nonsense to my mind. But secondly, the other nonsensical thing is the argument that many of the new atheists use that in the New Testament times they were so pre-scientific they had no notion about the laws of nature and they could believe in miracles easily and of course we can't. It's nonsense. Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, knew exactly where babies came from. And when he heard Mary's story and discovered she was pregnant, he, he wanted to divorce her. That's part of the historical record. He was a pious Jew. And it took some convincing for him to accept her. The blind man that Jesus cured, and there was a big discussion with the religious authorities. Was he blind before and what had happened? And he said, look, he said, gentlemen, uh, <laughs> it hasn't been known since the creation of the world that a man who's been born blind. He knew the regularity, yes. you see. So this is absurd as if they were somehow unintelligent people at the time of the New Testament. Why has atheism become so popular today? Well, popularity, I don't know how I'd measure popularity, but these people have all written best-selling books. And if we ask them what's driven that, one of the factors certainly is 9-11. Richard Dawkins claims that 9-11 radicalized him. And I think the conclusion that they publicly draw is such an easy one to follow in a way that it has immense popular appeal. This is religion, 9-11. Okay, it's extremist religion, but it's got to stop. Where does extremist religion come from? It grows on the edge of moderate religion. Therefore, all religion has to go. So they lump all religions into one box and decide that it's time for religion to be destroyed. And Stephen Weinberg, in a conference in the US last year, I think it was, he said that perhaps the best thing that we scientists can do is to finally bury religion. And so, on the one hand, there's 9-11, which sent a shockwave around the world as an example of what extremist fanatical religion can do as the new atheists understand it, that's the one hand. And on the other hand, the cultural authority of science. So they're bringing the two together to say that science is going to bury God finally. And then they say, well, we don't need God anyway to be good. They bring in the ethical questions and feel that they can provide a base for ethics. So there's a lot of appeal there because people are naturally afraid the rise of terrorism, its connection with uh, religion, and so on. So I think that's their own analysis of what drives it. Christopher Hitchens is very extreme in his book, God is Not Great. He says religion poisons everything. It's an unrelieved mm -hmm. evil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I noticed in the first debate that I saw between you and Richard Dawkins, you actually showed love to Richard Dawkins surprised me. 
uh, you were trying to beat him up. I thought you made some better points than he did. Was I accurate in reading the fact that you actually, actually love Richard Dawkins? Well, I would never try to beat anybody up because I don't think Christ did that. In other words, it seems to me that what is very important is to establish a civil public square where we can debate these ideas. I am diametrically opposed to Richard Dawkins' ideas. But as a Christian, I believe that all men and women are made in the image of God. And therefore, we must, I feel, debate these ideas in a very civilised way. And that's what I tried to do. Whether or not I was successful, uh, other people must judge. But that, to my mind, is the important thing. My motivation for doing the debate was not to score cheap points at all. It was to get these things aired so that the public who listen can judge between the two views and they can decide for themselves. At the end of that same debate that I saw you uh, uh, engage Richard Dawkins, you actually made a flat-out defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You said you believed in the resurrection. I thought his jaw dropped at the time, and he said, now I've got you. I knew you would come around to this. But uh, you, you do believe in the resurrection, don't you? Well, of course. It's the essential center base of Christianity. When Christianity burst on the world in the first century, one of the famous incidents is where Paul, the senior Christian apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, um, was called to account in front of the famous Areopagus Philosophical Court in Athens. And he pointed out then, much to the astonishment and jaw-dropping of the audience then, it hasn't changed at all, that God has appointed a day in which he'd judge the world, and he's going to judge the world by Jesus Christ. He will be the judge. And the evidence for that, that he's given to all men, not just to believers, it is objective historical evidence, is that he raised him from the dead. So, to my mind, this is the heart of it. This was the central apostolic message preached from the word go. Without the resurrection, Christianity would not exist. So I'm not embarrassed or ashamed of it. And since it's the heart of what I believe brings meaning and purpose into life, then I feel it's important to defend it. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of Great Stories with Charles Morris. I'm also grateful for John Lennox for speaking with me that day. As we were sitting around the desk of C.S. Lewis, talking about the nature of science and belief, and how instead of working against each other, they can often go hand in hand. And I also want to quickly mention that if you would like to watch a movie about the reluctant conversion of C.S. Lewis to Christianity, we have that DVD available on our website at haventoday.org. Watch the trailer. Make your gift to Haven Ministries to get your copy on its way. Now, if you want to hear more conversations like the one you just heard, why don't you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts? And if you enjoyed this episode with John Lennox, please help us get the word out by leaving a five-star review. You can also visit haventoday.org. There you can sign up for our weekly email and discover additional episodes posted on the blog. And as always, thank you for joining me once again on Great Stories with Charles Morris.